Italian 90, one day at a time, day five. I'm Rob Murphy. You are very welcome along to another episode of our daily podcast, looking back at the Italian 90 World Cup. On the line, as always, my co-host, Kieran O'Hara. Buonasera, Rob. Interesting. A variation. We'll, we'll, we'll do a, an outtake of all your different introductions uh, on the line as well. Welcoming back for his uh, third appearance so far of this World Cup, Billy Joe Patton. Thanks, Rob. You don't get any Italian out of me. We'll keep that to Kieran. Uh, Although we have to say, coming for just his second appearance, but I'm pretty confident he's going to greet us in uh, Arabic to represent Egypt's great results. Colin Jordan. Marhaba, Rob. Uh, key fact, gents. Uh, good evening from Beirut. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. I set him up for that with no. absolutely no warning. Can we have your vote, please, Beirut? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, Kieran. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah how are you Colin we've given you Egypt twice now so you're Egypt football correspondent yeah Rob um, it's, it's funny uh, when, I, when I first got the assignment I, uh, I knew it was the rookie it was, the, it was, it was because I was the rookie uh, but at the same time it's enlightened me greatly and uh, yeah prepare uh, for me to share that enlightenment and before we do our usual introduction to the games uh, Kieran, this day has surprised you a little bit because on paper ooh Looked like a looked like a difficult one, but you you were kind of pleasantly surprised. Yeah, like my perception. Obviously, I we were going to be paying attention to Egypt and the Netherlands because they're in Ireland's group. But I had this perception. I'm not sure from where that that Belgium weren't a particularly powerful European footballing nation at the time, and I I really should have known better. They had got to the semi-finals of the previous tournament. Ireland had only pipped them to get to Euro 88, so it's not like they'd suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth. And then as I watched the game, I was like, oh, I remember him, great footballer. Remember, oh, yeah, really good footballer. He, Enzo Schifo. You know, they actually, they're a quality side, and this was one of the more enjoyable assignments on the list for me. Billy Joe, before we get stuck in today, any thoughts on what we've uh, put you through today? I enjoyed it. Uh, I think I told you offline that uh, I, I was keen to watch Belgium for one reason and one reason only, and that's Enzo Schifo, uh, trying to remember you know the type of player he was, and and just and it was a real bonus then the fact that he played really well. But it's 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 it just comes down to that that it was an enjoyable game of football, and as Kieran said there, they they played the, they played well. You know, Korea played the way you would want any team in a World Cup to play. They played to the max of their abilities. They were full of enthusiasm, full of run, and had an idea about what they wanted to do, but just couldn't really lay a glove on, on, on the Belgians. Um, but it, it was a really enjoyable game. And uh, with some of the maybe games coming around the corner that I'm assigned to, thank you very much for that, Rob, um, I, I, I just really uh, made the most of it. All right, well, let's get stuck into the day. Day 5, June the 12th, 1990. Belgium 2, South Korea 0. Belgium versus South Korea. Verona was the venue. Yes. Welcome to Fair Verona, Rob. And the other red devils of football, Belgium. And actually, this was a really enjoyable game. Uh, This is... I mentioned at the top, I, I'd kind of taken for granted what Belgium achieved in football, but this was a golden age for them. Under Gitis, they qualified for three World Cups in succession. 
and they'd been in the top four in 1986. He'd actually, he'd, he'd retired halfway through qualifying, I think in June of 1989, when I think they had assumed he'd got the job done, they were going to Italy. And then after some kind of scrappy enough results in the months that followed, he was asked to come back. So it seems to have been a fitting climax to his time as manager of Belgium as well, because they're, they played brilliant football. They had some brilliant footballers. And they also had, we've been talking about this off air, some of the coolest named footballers in this World Cup. Do you want to give us some examples there? Well, I can, I can, I can uh, take the pressure off Kieran there. Well, in goals, you have Prudhomme, um, uh, if my pronunciation's wrong. And he ended up being, I think, the best goalkeeper in the 94 World Cup, a fantastic keeper with a beautiful head of hair. Um, and, and your man, DeWolf, played left back. You know, DeWolf now, what's not cool about that? And then Enzo Schifo, everyone remembers that name. Even Van der Elst. That's kind of pretty cool in, in my book as well. Uh, unless anyone wants to add anything. I'm not so much gone on Emmers. You covered both sides of the uh, Flemish-French uh, divide there as well. That was really, really uh, diplomatic of you there, Billy Joe That was very good. Like names on both ends there of the uh, spectrum. Come here, De Wolf. Let's start with him. Because in the first five minutes of that game, he executes a sliding tackle that I think he came from off screen 25 metres away. And uh, I mean, and then saw him do it two more times during the game. The sliding tackle in the 1990 World Cup is one of my big takeaways so far. No doubt. Uh, and it didn't make a difference how many ankles you took with it. Uh, it seemed to me you, you had a couple of those in your back pocket to, to use them at any stage that you wanted. And he was, he was the classical eager left back where he got stuck into everything and ploughed up the left wing whenever he could. And of course, he gets the second goal, which is an absolute screamer, really, when you think about it. He, you know, ball comes back from a corner, it's headed out to him. He actually does have a look into the box to see if there's any reason, you know, to whip across him. There's only one Belgian in there against four or five Koreans and he doesn't bother, he just hits one. But he hits it so sweetly. He cuts across it with his left boot and it just travels away from the goalkeeper at all stages and finds its way into the top corner. An absolutely brilliant, brilliant goal. Um, and I think the way he played the game, DeWolf, it was kind of all his colleagues and teammates played that way also and the way they started the game. They were the better team, but they were doing things the right way. They were playing at a pace the Koreans weren't comfortable with. And that's probably something that some of the dominant teams didn't do in this World Cup. They didn't really, to use a an overused term by Jack Charlton, put them under pressure in their own way. And even in the open stages of that game, you saw... You know, Van der Linden was moving quicker than Mickey Linden for most of it. Um, De Grease was very, very sharp. And, and Shifo, from the word go, was just, you could tell. If you'd asked somebody who didn't know any of the players on, on the field, go and pick the best player after 10 minutes of watching that game. And you knew he was the best player because he was better than everyone else at holding up the ball. He was better at passing it. He showed more composure. And even in that open period, he still got a shot on goal following a, a good uh, back heel by, by De Grease. So, you know, it, it really was impressive stuff. Uh, the Orbis album tells me that he uh, had tried tried it out initially like a lot of players and it hadn't worked out for him at just 24. So maybe just kind of fill us in on, on where he was and uh, what he was to do, what he did in this game. Uh, well, at this stage, actually, he's moved to Auxerre. And I think anyone that kind of remembers the Auxerre team of the 90s, they were it was the preeminent academy in French football. They developed... Talent after talent, they're sizable contributors to what it, what France achieved in the years that follow. But those players have, that come through in the late nineties, early two thousands for France, they're inspired by their playmaker at Auxerre was Enzo Schifo. 
And there are moments in this game, like in the first half, you've got to give credit to the South Koreans. They're really well organized at the back. They're throwing bodies in front of every attempt. They're trying to keep the score down and you can see that they get to halftime absolutely delighted that they have kept it to nil-nil. And then when the first goal comes, you actually feel sorry for them. They've started to get a little brave. They're pushing farther up the field. One player executes maybe a 15 to 20 yard pass that should be simple for his teammate to control. Enzo Shifo slips in between them. It takes one look up and realizes that there's only one defender in the back part of the field and one Belgian attacker. Lobs the ball forward. De Grisa comes onto it. Lobs it into the top corner of the goal with, I think his name is Hong Wing Bo. I hope I've got that right. Desperately, desperately, desperately trying to get back to stop it. And he just, he arrives at, at the net maybe a, a second later than the ball and just collapses into it and emerges laughing because they've tried everything and then get undone by basically a stroke of genius by Enzo Schifo. I think that the, the other great thing about that goal is that it's, it's, it, you're, it's unexpected nearly from Schifo. Not, you don't, you're not surprised that he finds the right pass. You're surprised at the way he does. The ball is bouncing close to the centre circle, up around his chest. And he hooks it over his right shoulder with his left boot. You know, he was, he was a right-footed player. And his beautiful, pristine Diodorus, left boot. And, and then the other good element of it was, was De Grease as well, recognises that the thing to do was hit it first time because Choi in the Korean goals, now he raced out, it was bad goalkeeping. But he had to elevate it so high to get it over the keeper because the keeper was right on top of him that it really, really, it's not one of those lobs that maybe goes... 12 or 13 feet off the ground. It went about 30, 40 foot in the air and dropped into the top corner. It was a, it's a fantastic, fantastic goal. But just maybe to give the Koreans some credit in that first half in particular, there was one brilliant corner routine by the Belgians where the ball made its way to De Grease, like on the penalty spot. And his first touch is immaculate to take it inside a defender with his right boot. And it just bounces up in front of him to smash it, basically from just inside the penalty spot. And about three Koreans throw themselves in the way of the ball and block, or, you know, a well-hit shot by De Grease and block it. And yeah. it was just really committed defense. Yeah, like they were just courageous throughout. And I mean, it, that goal in itself would have been a mo- enough of a highlight in this game, but you've already referenced the DeWolf finish is utter quality. Now, the defender kind of stands off him. And you can say, he probably does have a look, is the cross on? But once he realizes it's not, there's no second thought. He just picks his spot, top left corner, bang. It's, fa- it's, a, fant- it's a fantastic goal. But just to, even just getting back to Shifo and your throat, I, I always felt that like it's the st- opening game of the World Cup, as you mentioned, Rob, he hadn't uh, done it for Inter as a young player. And so that was probably no shame in the time that many players went to Italy with the difficulties you had there and only so many foreigners could get on the field at any one time for a lot of those big clubs. He goes, you know, after the World Cup and in the 90s, he go back, goes back to Torino and probably it isn't overly successful either because he is such a temperamental player. But his just his elegance on the ball, his creativity, it, I think it's it's kind of unique in that, or unusual in that you took the two Hazard brothers are also from the same town that he's from, Le Louvier, um, and by all means, his, his his father was a coal miner. You know, for such a uh, a player with such finesse, 
you know, he probably came from from a steelier background as well, that he had that toughness. And he does get dished out some treatment and he, and he gets up and he complains, but he gets on and never shirks away from the creativity. Colin, your thoughts on, on what we're hearing here and, and, and what you saw in the game? Yeah, to be honest, Billy had me at his father was a coal miner. Um, honestly... Yeah, I thought he might. No, looking, looking back at it and having looked back at a good few of the, the sort of um, group stage one games in this, I, I think Shifo's performance in this game, notwithstanding the fact that it was against South Korea, was probably the first standout performance of the tournament. And um, as the guys have said there, it was coming from a guy who obviously there was an awful lot of promise around, but maybe unfulfilled potential. And I think he was still quite young at the time, mid-20s. Um, it was a great performance by him. He just oozed class. And it was a, a time, I guess, where we were looking at kind of number 10s, the likes of Haji for Romania as well, uh, that this was a tournament that they actually did quite well in. But yeah, he was he was fantastic. But the Belgians looked uh, looked really, really good throughout. Um and looked like a team that could actually do some damage in this World Cup. Uh, the, the South Koreans, as Billy has said, they're, you know, brave game. The goal took the wind out of it for them. And uh, that was it for them. Incidentally, um, the last live sporting event I was at was North Korea versus Lebanon in a World Cup quali- qualifier here in Beirut behind closed doors last November because the uh, revolution was going on at the, at the time. Um, so I do have some background in Korean football. Obviously, this was North Korea, not South Korean. I'm, I'm the Korean football expert. I'm surprised I didn't get this game, to be honest. But uh, uh, but no, I mean, it's they, it's it was one of the greatest post. Well, it was the only post match press conference I've ever been at. The only reason I got in actually because it was behind closed doors was I said I was with the Mayo News, and uh, they let me in. But um, <laughs> honestly, Belgium Belgium look good here, and it's funny even looking at the names. It, it, it's it's. It's funny how many of those names you remember, which means that they left an imprint, obviously, with some of the the, with the players who went on to do quite well at different clubs as well. But yeah, really good performance. And like I said with Chifo, I think this was the first great performance of that World Cup. Now, one of, one of the things, Rob, that we are going to come around to pretty regularly on this podcast is commentary. Oh, yes. Because we're rediscovering this World Cup through many tongues, many different feeds, um, and and we have those moments where we know about the great South American commentators. We know about the great Italians, the Spanish, the ones that inject flair into their commentary. We don't really expect that from Benelux countries. One of the things that really took me by, by surprise in this regard was the coverage of on Belgian state broadcasters. So I've got a little treat for us. Okay, par the world, step de Chifo. Chifo, bien joué de la part de Chifo vers de Grèce. La sortie du gardien à l'aube. Est-ce que la balle va dedans Il va faire et il va Un goal Goal, 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 goal Buerski Buerski par la Belgique. Nous menons, nous menons par un but. Un zéro, c'est extraordinaire. Les Belges jouent mieux. Un tir, oui Un but Goal Goal, 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 goal! Goal for Belgique! If that is the commentary on round one yeah, versus South Korea, I would love to hear that guy from the winning quarter final in 1986. 
unbelievable commentary there I, I'm going to seek out the uh, 1986 quarterfinal without question straight away when we're finished this recording as we wrap this game up is there anything else to take from this from a South Korea perspective Billy Joe there really isn't other than they were brave uh, it's all these cliches they're, they're, they have technical ability and you can start to see some of the foundations of what we were to see 12, 12 years later wasn't it in terms of the World Cup I think you can. I think if you if you look at it in the knowledge of what we we learned about that team twelve years later in their home uh, tournament, they they have the athleticism. They tried to play the game at pace. They tried to counterattack quickly, but they just couldn't really lay a glove on the Belgians because they were just the Belgians had too much composure. I think it is worth mentioning now whether it's purely by coincidence or whether it's through his leadership. But Jan Koolmans comes off the bench at half time, goes into the team. Belgium, I'm not saying, I don't say necessarily feel that they're playing any better, but they just feel a little more confident and a little bit more direct. And he has a great shot at, uh, you know, midway through the second half. And he's a fantastic player for Belgium throughout the, the eighties. And at this stage in his career, he's 33, nearly finished. And he, he's still have, having a big role to play. And he's kind of one of those unusual footballers in that he's six foot three, controls the ball sometimes well out in front of himself but he knows he's that big long stride to get to it and you've seen him score goals like that where he seems to have overrun the ball but he always seems to get there uh, with that deceptive uh, stride and, and pace and I think he he's important he's important for the Belgians throughout that era where uh, Kieran said they had so much success. Put it to you that the game itself the atmosphere the empty stadium even the jerseys this you know we've been talking about this was the first global World Cup and this was a turning point for football. This seemed more Mexico '86 than USA '94 to me. Yeah, so uh, especially after looking at some of the earlier games, uh, like the atmosphere at the at the opening game, Argentina Cameroon, and even the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian uh, Netherlands game, this was a bit of a weird one, a bit of an outlier in that regard, and nearly in keeping with uh, with what you'd nearly expect from, as Kieran was saying, the Benelux countries and that, and obviously Korea not having any fans there either. And it was probably a game that didn't generate too much interest. Um, so it was a weird one. Um, but like I said, a weirdly enjoyable game to watch. And Belgium especially were such a nice team to look at. Um, I actually don't know how they got on in this tournament, so I'm interested to see how they progress. Nice. Nice. That's what we're looking for. We know a lot of our listeners haven't l- looked ahead too much. Billy Joe, uh, football aside, you notice something interesting about the kit. I'm a fan of retro kits and what, uh, particularly maybe in, even in my younger days was, was more. And I, I took a particular liking to the Belgium away kit. Lovely white uh, Adidas jersey, uh, the old sort of Adidas associated with the originals brand now. I had to take a, a second look. And normally uh, the crest would be on, on, the, on the left side of the chest. But for some reason, the, that Belgian kit of the time had the crest on the right side with the Adidas uh, logo on the left side of the chest. And I think even to add uh, further complexity to the discussion, Kieran may be able to correct me on this, I actually think Prude Holmes' goalkeeper jersey was the reverse. Am I right? Yeah, and actually, uh, I did notice that myself, and I, I've done a little check. Um, there, There is no official reason for why this has occurred. It's just one of those rare anomalies in a World Cup timeline that Belgium showed up at the Italia 90 World Cup with their logo on the opposite side of the jersey to every other team. And the only person that seemed to fit in normally was their goalkeeper. One of the friends of the podcast, museumofjerseys.com. Brilliant website. But uh, Dennis has has agreed to join us on the podcast at a later date. And uh, that's going to be a question for him. There's no question. We'll get him on that case right now. 
The Netherlands won. Egypt won. Group F, Holland and Egypt take a bow in the competition. Kieran, we've had discussions about this in the production meetings. We are calling them the Netherlands to respect the name of the country. But when I was doing like searches through the archives of the newspapers, Holland is what drew up the most searches. I'm just saying it. Yeah, well, it's not my fault that the world hasn't been properly educated. <laughs> it was ridiculous that we called them, uh, like basically calling Ireland Munster, really, with a few more technicalities That's... in it, but it's... Yeah, maybe I'm. Maybe I've got an issue in that I I do correct people on this, but Holland is a region within the country of the Netherlands. So, can we just get that out of the way from the outset? I don't want to hear any references to Holland from this point onwards. Oh, I've put it in everyone's head. It's going to slip in. It's like the uh, Czechs and the Slovaks for Billy Joe, but we've, we're past that, Billy Joe. We're past that, don't worry. <laughs> for now. Um, Colin, we, we kind of made you our main watcher of this game, uh, mainly because we just wanted to punish you for reasons we're not even sure why. But um, it turns out that Egypt play better football when they're not playing Ireland. Not looking ahead in the tournament or anything, but anyways. Yeah, guys, absolutely. Uh, was very much... Um I wouldn't say looking forward to this one, but yeah, I approached it cautiously and was was then very surprised, quite surprised by how uh, Egypt played. Um, playing the European champions, uh, the Dutch, uh, the Netherlands, and uh, I mean a t- a, that that Dutch team heading into this game, uh, heading into this World Cup, and when you look, when you look at the age profile of that Dutch team coming off the back of a obviously a victorious Euro '88 uh, campaign. Like they had to be on the short list of many people's like favorites for this tournament in 1990. So, I, I, th- I think we'll they were third favorites. Yeah, and obviously we'll go into uh, into it a little bit deeper as we're talking as to why that was probably a little bit unjustified, uh, given what was going on behind the scenes. Um, for the Egyptians, they were coming off uh, a pretty horrific uh, African Nation Nations Cup three months prior in March of 1990, and going back to 1988, they did a poor one as well. I think they'd won it in '86. So traditionally, they would have been one of the stronger uh, African nations, North African nations. Then coming into this World Cup, they were definitely in poor form. And uh, I think hopes were uh, quite slim for them to, to get a result in this game. But honestly, played really good football for a lot of it. Um, to say that it defended heroically, it was like more Paul McGrath defending than it was uh, Richard Dunn defending. There was a lot of actually skillful defending in it. Like uh, I'm talking like back heel and, sc- and, and scissor kick defending. Well in it, um, late equaliser and, and much deserving of it. So I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, you mentioned that there's a lot going on behind the scenes with the Netherlands. Um, we should just point out the players between qualification and the commencement of the World Cup, the players have had a vote sanctioned by the Football Association which allowed them to remove the manager. That's absolutely bonkers. You just just wouldn't hear of that anywhere. To be fair, the only other place you could possibly hear of that is maybe Mayo. And... (laughs) When I, was, when, I was reading, <laughs> when I was reading about this, um, it's absolutely insane. I mean, like, it's funny, last week we were talking about how bonkers it was, what was going on with Argentina and the way that presidents get involved and politicians get involved and Maradona criticizing the manager on the eve of the game, etc. And how that was kind of an accepted norm. And then you nearly had this weird, nearly post-colonial arrogance of the Dutch, where they, like, I mean, to even go through what even happened as regards, um, they weren't happy with uh, who they had in the run-up to the tournament. Thies Liebrechts. 
Liebrix, exactly, and that the players basically obviously led by the, the AC Milan 3 and quite strong characters obviously elsewhere in Koeman and others um, went to the Federation and said they weren't happy. He was uh, gently removed. There was a vote. Cruyff was the guy that looked like the favourite to get it. Um, our old friend... Cruyff uh, was actually who they voted for. They had a vote on who they would like to replace him. Cruyff exactly. won the vote. So our old friend Renus Mickles, who at, at that point had a prominent position in the Dutch Federation of Football, uh, didn't want Cruyff to get the job because, well, the theory goes that he didn't want Cruyff going to the World Cup, possibly winning it, and then removing some of the lustre that was attached to him winning Euro 88, uh, Mickles winning Euro 88 as manager. So vetoed uh, the players want for Cruyff to get it and instead opted for Leo Beanhacker, who was seen as a kind of a, an in-between uh, proxy type guy who was, uh, would, he was apparently second in the voting for the players, certainly not the favourite, uh, Cruyff being the favourite and he was kind of seen as, as a candidate who would please everybody and very quickly approved that he wasn't pleasing anybody. Of course, like many of these opening games, had it gone a different way for them, I mean, they were leading 1-0 with seven minutes to go. Had they won the first game, the pressure possibly would have been off them. Uh, but he took a, a, a quite a, a kind of authoritarian approach heading into the uh, game, bearing in mind that, again, the star three players of that um, of that team, Rijkaard, uh, Van Basten and Gullit, had won the European Cup a month before a very long season with AC Milan and were probably quite fatigued. And I think the feeling was within the camp, or reading, uh, looking back at it, was that they needed a nice, gentle lead into the tournament. And instead, he brought them to Yugoslavia, to pretty much a communist training camp, I think. And this set the tone for what was, I think, a pretty uh, turbulent and disastrous run into the tournament. Uh, yeah, like I said, I think had they won the opening game, it might have changed the dynamic of how things set out for them on this tournament leading 1-0 up, seven minutes to go, and uh, yeah, end up drawing against Egypt, which I know we spoke again about last week, it being such a shock for Cameroon to, to beat Argentina. This was also a shock, and you can see it in the celebrations of the uh, Egyptian penalty. Um, it was nuts, and obviously a huge amount of Egyptians in the ground as well, short hop over to Italy for them, and it was great to see. There is, you can have some sympathy for Beanacker because he's actually the manager in, in Ajax at the time. Um, and the previous time that he's managed the Netherlands, they failed to qualify for Mexico 86. That's his only track record. But the fact that he is IX manager means he only gets to work with them from May. So he's taken over a month before the World Cup. It's, it's, it's insane. Like, even the whole process that they were trying to implement, and I mean, again, they vetoed Cruyff, who then went to Barcelona and had, like, the greatest spell of possibly any manager in, in, the, in the course of five or six years ever. Um, but yeah, even the way that, the, like, this seemed to be nearly the norm. If you look down through the list of Dutch managers throughout the 80s, they nearly had like half a dozen or eight or something. It was crazy. And like, it was, it seemed that whoever was going to get this, it was just a short term thing. But you're right. Like, the lead into the tournament was a disaster. Um, giving the player the powers, again, that's why I kind of referenced the Mayo thing and obviously being humorous about it. But giving the player the power to actually, the power of appointment effectively. And then, um, taking it away from them and picking who you want it was only a recipe for disaster and, and it kind of proved in this tournament because again when you look at the age uh, the age profile of of that Dutch team they should have been absolutely in their prime I think Van Basten was only 26 Rijkaard uh, Hullet same thing mid-20s and um, yeah they should have been a shoe in to get to the latter stages of this tournament 
um, yeah, it's it's crazy, and it's um, it obviously set in train motion like of a series of uh, Dutch performances in bigger tournaments where they're disappointed. But I think this was the big one for them coming off the back of Euro 88. Sounds to me like they should have gone to Saipan for a quick holiday before the tournament and that would have sorted all the problems. They would or have been even, even the Catskills, Billy, or something, you know? I mean, they, they did come in here. Hullet wasn't really fully fit. He was unfit. He'd yeah. only recovered seven weeks before. And that's my memory of this as, as a child was... We absurdly had our fingers, toes, anything we could cross in the hope that Ruth Hullet was so banjaxed it would make no odds against Ireland. But he does wield a lot of power. He's the person that leads the heave against Liebrechts, apparently over an alleged racist comment years before when Liebrechts was over Feyenoord. So that's that's something that's festered in the time that Hullet has been injured, he wasn't there for most of the qualification. And then he comes in after they've qualified and really upsets everything. So the pressure the players put themselves under at that point, it, it must have been magnified by beyond any other team in this tournament. I just uh, You can imagine that with a team like this, the pressure coming into them, they're in the short list of favourites for the tournament notwithstanding the fact that they didn't have the manager they wanted uh, going into the tournament. Again, just the momentum of these things. And like you can imagine a boring 1-0 victory against a lowly side like Egypt would at least settle them into that group and might, I suppose, allay some of the fears of some of their star players like Hullet that they didn't get who they wanted uh, as manager. And in a way, if they had so much power anyway, then maybe they'd nearly take over the running of the team. You don't know. Um, I mean as they call him, Don Leo, the, the, the manager they did get. I mean, he was a, quite an experienced uh, manager even at that stage and went on to manage kind of uh, a lot more around the world uh, with different teams. I think he managed Poland to the World Cup and Trinidad and Tobago to the World Cup laterally. But um, yeah, just to kind of go back to it, to, to be leading that game, heading to a routine victory, it would have, I think, settled them a lot more. As you said, Kieran, like Hullet was not fit. And I know that was the big talk going into the Irish game. And even looking at that uh, Egyptian game, he wasn't fit. Uh, Van Basten, I think, was already struggling with his ankles at that point. But they still had enough. And you you figured, had they won that game, or looking back on it, had they won that game, it, it might have turned out a little bit differently for them. Um, but a lot of pressure on them. And again, like any of those instances where the players have so much power, it, it only adds to the pressure that's on them to perform. And that goes across all team sports, as we've seen in GA and soccer and other sports. I'm genuinely kind of surprised that I haven't paid a lot of attention to how much disarray there was in the Dutch camp. You know, I've always looked at that World Cup as Holland looking to follow on from 88, having missed out in the 86 World Cup and just devastatingly losing uh, in the knockout stages. But we'll get to that at another point. But just just kind of learning about this now, what's your thoughts as you kind of hone in? As Colin has enlightened us, I, I, I think that people and maybe maybe in, in particularly in Ireland and England probably don't understand the role of the Dutch sportsman because our sportsman and woman in, in any of those team sports, they're willing to speak, they're encouraged to speak. And that's probably why they felt they could, you know, heave basically the manager and that that's part of their sporting culture or their football culture. Whereas in Britain, that. Uh, you know, you do what the manager tells you and it's as simple as that and you're not a good soldier unless you do that. And I think it was, I think in, in Simon Cooper's book about Bobby Robson, how he um, got on a PSV and that he, the players, the Dutch players felt he didn't talk to them and that they weren't being heard when they spoke uh, subsequently. And I think that that's, 
an important thing when you understand the Dutch players at that time. I think now you, you move on 30 years time. I think players are much more involved in, in the whole process of their preparation and feel much more engaged in what their manager is seeking for them to do. Um, and I, I, I just think that now we'd have a better understanding. But again, another point is that particularly in World Cup tournaments, a team as talented as the Dutch are with a new manager, sometimes in spite of a manager, even if there are personal grievances, if you can just get over those early rounds, struggle through, if they could have won a game in the group stages and maybe avoided Germany, who knows what would have happened in, in that World Cup with Holland because they Kullet would have got stronger, would have got fitter, Van Basten might have got going and you're dealing with a to- totally different beast. I, I, I should just say as well, uh, Renus Mikkels might have been so determined to <laughs> maintain his legacy he actually played a part in Bin Hacker's management. He was uh, involved in some advisory capacity, and and he succeeds Bin Hacker as the Dutch manager the following year. So we we have an instance here of a manager who clearly just can't let go. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, it was uh, the Dutch team in one sense were ahead of their time in terms of looking for more input, as Billy Joe has highlighted. I think we need to try and uh, move towards uh, Egypt, Colin, but uh, anything further to say on Holland before we do that? Uh, no, other than I think we've already said it, but it would have been fascinating to see that had they managed to eke out a win here with uh, poor performance and that where they might have gone. Uh, because... Again, crazy to think that they even switched managers twice uh, between winning the European Championships heading into this tournament. But yeah, it would have been fascinating to see uh, with a different start how they could have gone on and performed in this because, um, yeah, they were some team, uh, some team on paper um, and just didn't fulfil it. I got the impression Egypt just like had a right go at this. Is it because Holland kind of allowed them to invite themselves into the game for want of a better way of putting that? Or did they genuinely just have a right go? I think, you know, it's it's like even, not to draw too many parallels between Cameroon and Argentina, but it's it's the first game of a World Cup like that. And when the early goal doesn't come for the on-paper dominant team, I think you had a team here that I, I know I already said it, but they had such a poor lead into the tournament Egypt did expectations were obviously quite low for them um, and certainly maybe a bit of complacency with the Dutch as well. But they, yeah, they played football and they, like, this wasn't some kind of heroic defending type, boot the ball up and just hope for the best type thing. They passed the ball. They had a couple of uh, quite good players. Um, Tally's man, who is the striker, Hassan, who over the course of a 20-year career, uh, it's a fascinating one with this guy, Hassan, Hassan, uh, 176 caps and 69 goals over uh, over 20 years. It's probably not even a great strike rate, to be honest, for 176 caps. Second most cap player in world football. Um, but he actually led the line quite well for them. And uh, they did another boy up front for them, Ramsey, as well. And they did, they actually did quite well. And like, like I said, this wasn't like put them under pressure, hoofing the ball around the place. They held their own. Um, they, they defended well. They didn't look under like they created some some decent chances. They nearly like they were on a par with the chances they created as as with the Dutch, and they didn't look uh, greatly outclassed at any point in the game. Um, I mean, the Dutch goal. It seemed to me like it was kind of. I mean, I'm going to say cla- classic Wim Kieft uh, <laughs> in that it was kind of a. There was actually there was first of all there was the. 
the sort of mishit stroke dummy uh, followed by yeah well, no hang on we got we got to stop we got to stop there this is slow motion okay so was it a dummy or did frank the great frank reichard mishit i i know what billy joe is going to say and he's going to say this was the best executed dummy of all time uh, having mishit many half follies in the past i know i miss it when i see it and he it, it was it was a fresh air it was a swing and a miss. Uh, it was a swing and a miss. But it, it, to be honest, good reactions by Keeft. Took a bit of deflection. Keeper was kind of caught left-footed. But, I mean, you know, you can imagine the sense of, of relief that came into the Dutch team at that point. But it didn't improve their performance too much. And, yeah, Egypt were, like, Koeman's, um, Koeman's mistake for the penalty, like, 83 minutes into the game, seven minutes to go. I mean, it was it was a free kick in my book. Uh, like he pulled the jersey well outside the box, and there was probably no contact by the time the Egyptian player was inside the box. Um, that said, you know he went down. He got the uh, he got the penalty, and the goal scorer Magadi Al Bagani. Uh, I mean, fantastic penalty uh, against Van Brooklyn, uh, right into the bottom corner, bottom left corner. And unbelievable celebrations. And that, that to me was nearly the highlight of the game because first of all, you got to see all the Egyptian fans, fans in the stadium. Um, the, the Egyptian players went nuts. There's actually a brilliant um, Vodafone ad from a couple of years ago from Egypt uh, with the goal scorer, um, Abdel Ghani. And he's actually, it's, it's, it's just a setup where he's like, as, an, old, as a, an elderly gentleman, retelling the story of the penalty to like everybody who listened to him. Uh, and I think Ram Breuchlin even uh, features at one point, but uh, clearly a great moment in Egyptian World Cup history. And but they like they earned it, and it's funny to see how obviously their performances dipped <laughs> considerably uh, after that with the next two performances. But had they had they played like like they did against Holland, uh, it could have been a different World Cup for them in the next two matches. And I think Ireland were right to be kind of a little bit worried because they certainly played better against Holland than we did. Sorry, the Netherlands. Thank you. Thank you. It's starting to get through. I'm going to introduce a swear box. There's been several references. Uh, Rob, you owe a couple of euro at this stage. Take it out of my fee, guys. <laughs> Fiddy Joe, did you want to weigh in? As Colin rightly pointed out, um, all of, sometimes about deli- you know, a dummy, executing a good dummy is how you sell it. And I don't think anyone sells it better than Reichardt does in that moment. That's a fair point. I also thought he, I also thought Keith's finish wasn't bad. It was the outside of his boots. So we'll give him a little more credit than we did in 1988. You mentioned there, Colin, the, the celebration in the ground when Egypt got the penalty. I just thought it might be worth having a listen to some Egyptian commentary on that particular moment. <laughs> Sometimes you you just don't need a translator. 
But just in case you do, I think you might have said Alpha's cancelled, but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, moving back to the, I, I just spotted it in the uh, Trinity Mirror here. Cairo skies lit up with fireworks as thousands of Egyptians poured into the streets, chanting and honking car horns in jubilation after their 1-1 draw with Holland. Amazing, amazing day in Cairo. Uh, it's almost it for this game. Anyone want to add anything to finish? Just, just a couple of little things while I was delving into the memory banks and sticker albums, etc., that one of the players who stood out for me in all of Egypt's games was the goalkeeper, Ahmed Shubair. Um And he actually ended up becoming a member of parliament and he served in Hosni Mubarak's government, which was overthrown, obviously, in the revolution in 2011. So things haven't worked out so well for him since. I wonder, was he still wearing the tracksuit bottoms when he got the heave? <laughs> There was there was there was a great clip actually, guys. There, there was a great clip just uh, near the end of the footage of the Egyptian bench, and around three of them, and I couldn't f- make out whether they were actually the backroom staff or substitutes, were drawn on fags, just having a good old suck of a fag. They were nervous, and uh, it was a great th- throwback to kind of how things were a little bit more back then. But uh, a huge result for them. But it also re- reminds you, like we sometimes think we've a monopoly on fan hysteria or how we feel about football. But across all those African nations, obviously, but like, as we've seen since with Salah and Egypt, but like football is huge in Egypt and Tunisia and Morocco and these countries. So this was a huge deal for them. And uh, kind of great to see and, and look back and, and, and remind ourselves, because we were so consumed with how we fared in that group, that you forget what it meant for the other nations and huge result for them. So I think the thing for me, Rob, is if we, if we take certain teams from certain days, Often there's just a random coupling of games. But here we've got two games where they've got a regional significance. This is Belgium and the Netherlands. They're neighbours. They obviously rank each other against each other. Like they determine who's doing well by the how well they're doing by the performance of the other. Dutch football goes professional in the 50s and we see the results in the 70s. 74, 78. The Netherlands just take off. Brilliant team, brilliant players, brilliant club sites. Belgian football goes professional in the mid-70s. And what we're seeing of them now, 86 and 90, is them kicking on. So they're looking at what the Netherlands have previously achieved up until 1986. They're saying, we've got to a semi-final, we need to now push on. And then the Netherlands goes and wins the Euros. So where next for them? When you get to this World Cup on this particular day, you get the sense that the Dutch are going to flatter to deceive in this World Cup, but Belgium may well be a player. All right, time to say the goodbyes. Colin, I think today surprises a little bit. It's probably yet another example of if you have a purpose to sit down and watch old football, you can find all sorts of interesting stories. I think World Cup 90 is just long ago, Rob, that uh, it's like watching with fresh eyes and it's super enjoyable. Uh, great to read these names, Prudhomme and co. And uh, yeah, just enjoy. Loving it so far. Billy Joe, the journey continues. We're up and running. You've got three in the bag already. The only reason I agreed to do this, Rob, was so I could get to watch classic number 10s and players I remember from my youth. So I am happy after today's uh, uh, podcast for the simple reason I got to see Enzo Schifo playing really well and if I can get a few more games like that I'll be happy Kieran, you, you get to watch the bad number 10s I do and I get to look at some particularly odd goalkeeping and some hackery defending but it's just struck me as I listen to the guys there that's the pleasure of it when in in 1990 I couldn't 
find something to refer to the 1970 World Cup with the degree of depth that we're getting to do this in. So that's the thrill of it. This is a World Cup where we can actually examine everything. There you go, folks. Stay with us. Five episodes down. Go back and listen to them. Some great stuff in those early episodes. John Foot interview. I think listeners really enjoyed yesterday's show with John Anderson and Gavin Webster. That was a cracking show. Every show is good. We're back again tomorrow. Two more games. There's 22 teams we've seen in this World Cup. There's two to still see. And they started on day six, Uruguay and Spain. Bye, folks.